when that song came you out. Were, you're older than I was. <laughs> I am now. I was 35 when I was rocking out to that song. I was 35, never. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Tradesplaining, a podcast about two guys just trying to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life. On today's episode, we'll talk about Brittany, as always, a COP26, and this is not about ACAB. Whatever that, whatever that is. China, with a Y, but new stuff, really, just and, and kind of related to tech. And later, we'll talk with Mark Exposito about using data and AI to guide the future. And a new hangover cure brought to you by Ancient Byzantium. The OGs. And always, we'll have the usual listener feedback and news roundup. So without further ado, no. and let's just get into it. How does it always? <laughs> Welcome, everyone, once again to episode 25. You'll be happy to know this is the atomic number of manganese, whatever that is. I love manga. Uh, manga no, manganese forms part of the colorway of my kitchen, in case anyone's interested. And it's also the age at which I first moved to Geneva. Anyway, let's get started right away with listener feedback. Sorry, no, wait, we can't start with that. Or not. I think this really important thing our listeners are waiting for, Brittany is free. Brittany is now free. I know listeners are very anxious about this. I know I was. So I wanted to let you know before we get into the other stuff on global warming, blah, 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 global trade, et cetera, et cetera, the state of California has entered her conservative ship and now she can run her own life. And we have to into retire the, the hashtag. She can run her own life into the ground. We have to we have to run the we have to we have to stop the hashtag free Britney, but that's actually a point. Like what's gonna happen? Thanks, Rob, for that important and life changing news on Britney Spears. I'm sure our list will be thrilled to hear all about that. I'm looking forward to her next album, I'm a Slave for You, volume thirteen. I'm hoping for toxic, the longer longer version. You know what's toxic? This conversation is toxic. Anyway, moving on. A few listeners have written to us and commented regarding the lack of TS episodes over the past few weeks. But listeners will be happy to know that there is a trade link here. That's right. Supply chain issues have also affected the delivery of new TS episodes, specifically shortages of Woodford Reserve at the border. Rest assured, however, that TS Incorporated, our parent holding company, has chartered some private shipping vessels to circumvent these container shortages and uh, ensure that we can now start coming to you as part of our regularly scheduled broadcasting. Actually, I just realized today they have to verify your age online. And right now, my passport is being verified by an online liquor delivery service by an ai computer <laughs> so i don't know if we're going to get to the end of this episode we're out well we're much much bourbon right much now. like the novel dune we can't do episodes <laughs> without woodford reserve we can't navigate ts episodes without woodford reserve like they can't navigate space travel much like dune comma much like dune anyway moving on to more substantive stuff one listener did write us in regarding the UK and the USMCA discussion we had last episode to mention that the latter, meaning the USMCA, does not even have the possibility to expand its membership, which we, we agree. We should have mentioned that more forcefully. We just didn't want to continue punching down on the UK. True. Yeah, of course, there there is no provision for it, but the UK would... Of course, ask for a negotiated solution to that. But it's true, there's no built-in way for that to the membership to... Unless they were to renegotiate the USMCA 2.0, which would be NAFTA 3.0, I guess. In any case, this listener also wrote us to ask whether uh, it's because of our association with the UN that we did not mention Chinese Taipei also applied for membership as part of the CPTPPP. Next discussion. Next, next question. Uh, the answer is no. So <laughs> as most of our listeners will know, we may or may not be associated with the UN, but we do this in our private capacity. And so we are free to 
mention news as it comes to us. We just did not mention Taiwan because we had to cut it out because Rob can, can drone on. Well, actually, we just omitted it, but it's true. Taiwan has also applied for membership just after China to the uh, CPTPP, the Trans-Pacific. And that's also, I guess, being reviewed as we speak. So let's wait and see how that plays out. But on a more positive note, the same listener also wrote to us again to tell us that she regularly shares tradesplaining to her students of international economics issues in the hopes that some of them have used it to complement the, quote, rather boring textbook, end quote. And I think our work here is done. I don't know what other positive... Hashtag life goals, that's what we were going for. That's, that's, that's what we were aiming for. Also, a little asked us, which I think is a fair question, why on God's green earth is Artie always mentioning Staten Island? I don't think he said God's green earth. He just asked the question. Threw that in for meaningless emphasis. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. And the answer is that longtime listeners will know Maybe new time listeners might not know that I am from Staten Island. I grew up there, and so I have to mention it legally. Uh, that's correct, folks. The uh, FCC. Yeah, the the inferiority complex of all Staten Islanders is that we need to mention Staten Island in most cases, and also mention famous people who are from Staten Island. Yeah, and like many people from Staten Island, you're Italian. Malavicieri uh, is an I, Italian I, name. I, it's actually from the not, south of Italy, from Sicily. It's actually not. Just go a little bit east. East by across, east across the Adriatic. I mean, okay, you'll, you'll hit where I'm from. But anyway, but, but yeah. you're digress. Thank you, folks. Anyway, I am from Staten Island. Okay, just Very in good. case anybody's wondering. So then let's just jump right into this episode's news roundup. Last episode, we touched on the Evergrande crisis in China. And while Evergrande hasn't collapsed a la Lehman Brothers, as some have predicted, and I incorrectly predicted or half predicted, right? I you did of, kind of think maybe it would happen. I spoke out of both sides of my mouth, Correct. which I'm getting better at. One prediction does seem to have come true, and that is that the crisis has started to spread to Chinese bond markets. So there's something we, we talked about as a possibility. A bond sell-off started last week following the Evergrande default looking more and more likely. This forced China to come in and loosen financing rules, which seems to have abated the crisis for now. So stay tuned as this has become a rapidly rapidly evolving topic. And it was overshadowed a little bit by COP26, which we'll get into in a little bit as well. Sure. And I think it's, this is, so Evergrande was a property development company, which had several hundred billion dollars worth of debt that they were suddenly defaulting on. And there are many such companies. So we were thinking, okay, could this have a ripple effect? The answer is not yet. But there's a lot of evidence that the Chinese economic model may be hitting a certain turning point. So with them cracking down on tech companies and so on, and, and with inflation now rising there as it is elsewhere, and a stock market and other value being lost because people are wondering what's going on, it's it's kind of an important point, I guess, to keep our eye on because they're also kind of an economic driver. Like them or not, they're an economic driver of world growth. Yeah, it is something to, to keep an eye on. understand now that I'm really happy to be one of the people to congratulate him that Prime Minister Xi has been named one of the historical leaders with Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping. Yeah, there, there was this Chinese Communist Party meeting which solidified standing in China. I think one question I have on a more meta level, wink wink, which we'll get into <laughs> later, is people staying in power for, for a long time leads to sort of calcification of institutions and forward momentum in, in if you're looking back on history and whether or not this will seem this will also turn out to be the case with China, I think is an interesting question. So Xi seems Xi Jinping seems to be here for at least the next five years and maybe longer. I don't recall if they've named anyone who's of the right age to potentially step in in five years. 
but I think we're stuck with G for the next, you know, five to 10 short to medium term. So it'll be interesting to see how China's economic rise continues or how it shapes up. Yeah. And also how that uncertainty there leads to development elsewhere. So you had pointed out to me tech listings. So IPOs and so on in India have gone up and this is the first year in maybe seven or eight where they've gone down in China. So do we see, like we see in manufacturing, a kind of outward movement of interest, outward movement of capital and so on towards other countries? Some of the countries where where we're working, you know, developing countries who could use a shot in the arm. I think that's also something to keep an eye on that this is that that's another reason this is an important moment. I mean, we seen you mentioned in production, so in manufacturing, sorry, that Vietnam is is growing base of manufacturing in the region as China gets more and more expensive as it grows economically. And I think many investors are saying so they're they're quoted as saying that this will be more of the same in the tech sector. So India is growing, I think it was at 550%, whereas the Chinese IPOs will have slowed for the first time in seven years. So in the words of Iron Maiden, investors are running for the hills. Very good. That's where we were going with this whole story, folks. I was just waiting for that. <laughs> It was just percolating in my head. So we'll come back to that. Obviously, we do have to talk also about the COP26. So this is the group of nations coming together to talk about climate change and to try to keep us from burning up. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what the results have been of that conference. Right. So more than expected, less than hoped, I think would be a good way to, to sum it up or good enough to quote Robert for the New York Post. To quote Robert's Gitmore, the Post, I hope not. Be something about something, something immigrants. Most listeners will be aware of COP26. And by the time that this podcast airs, we'll have just concluded. So for those of you, though, who have been living under a Facebook colored rock the past few weeks, the climate summit in Glasgow did wrap up with plenty of late drama, with countries agreeing on new rules limiting greenhouse gas emissions. There was also, as I mentioned, this drama with last minute objections from India and China stalling a commitment to end coal use and fossil fuel subsidies. Again, trying to keep temperatures down below two degrees Celsius and increase funding to help countries adapt to climate change, which has also become a, a big issue, as we'll, we'll touch on a little bit later. There were also rules for the Paris Climate Accord, which have derailed several other climate summits. Uh, there were also finalized. And these included, in addition to the ones I mentioned, transparency regulations for how countries report emissions. So this is also another issue that critics have have come back with. It's, it's, it's one thing to say you're going to reduce emissions. It's another to measure whether or not this is being done and how. And there are also guidelines for a global carbon market in the hopes that this will allow countries to trade carbon offset credits. This is also approved. So as I, as I mentioned, definitely progress. Though a lot of these points are light on details, as is often the case with, with these large agreements involving so many countries, nearly 200 in this case. All told, the pledges have been forecast to lead to growth or puts the world on course for growth between 2.5 and 2.7 degrees Celsius of warming by the end of this century, which is much, much higher than the Paris Climate Accord of between 1.5 and 2 degrees. As I mentioned progress, probably not good enough. I think it's probably indicative also of, of the human condition and that we just wait for crises to come before we act. The question for me is whether it'll be too late by the time we get our ducks in a row. One thing for me that I, before Rob will jump in, I think the discussions reflect a lot of how these have gone on in past years and past decades where it's a tension at play between developing and developed countries and how we share the burden and who shares the burden and what's the percentage and who will actually pay for these things. So much like a marriage. Uh, yes. But divorce, you know, will be will be quite serious in this case. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. I think I think it's yeah. So you talked about some of the outcomes. For me, the, this issue of whether it's just blah blah is really important for us to think about because this is easy to say, but we know the difficulties of of this kind of meeting, this kind of cooperation. So is the blah blah changing anything? And my answer would be yes. 
Companies have to talk about their performance. Companies have to think about it. Are they all solving it yet? No. Countries as well have to make these commitments. Then they're looked at by people and they're seen to be not adequate. And then countries are having to do something about it. So the blah, blah is all part of the process. It's extremely frustrating, but I don't see how we do it without. I mean, Greta's there to, to be our conscience, but I think this whole conference was about improving our level of ambition now, not in 2050. So what are we going to do in the 2020s? So already the talk has changed, and that was the subject of this U.S.-China agreement. Well, let's see if it comes. We also know financial markets are changing. So they valued this company, Rivian, which does electronic pickup trucks. This is for the U.S., obviously. America. Uh, way above the, the value of Ford and GM. And I don't think Rivian has, has even shipped any trucks yet. So the financial markets are moving. And the last thing I think is really interesting is they've talked about ending or reducing fossil fuels, coal, and all these other things. And so I'm reading analysis about the transition that can that will have and the effects it'll have. So in the U.S., I think there's several million jobs associated with it. For instance, the U.S. is either one or two in terms of global oil production, and these jobs will be lost. And so there's also already analysis about as this green transition takes place, we need to think about it ahead of time. And they compare it to the so-called China shock. So whether you believe it or not, the opening of China was a huge competitive pressure on the U.S. Lots of manufacturing jobs were lost. We know this. And the communities never came back. So is that going to be the way this happens during the green transition as well or not? So those are the kinds of things. Lots of people are writing on it. I'm thinking, and you, you and I are thinking a little bit about also the trade aspects of it. Oh, it's an important point. I think there'll be plenty more opportunities for us to, to talk about this and dissect it in a bit more detail. And I think there's some foresight that we moved uh, trades planning studios to the 10th floor. Yeah, yeah, we, we've, we've, we've done big, big forward-thinking investments. Resilience, preparation. Lake Geneva can only rise so far, so I think we were good wherever That's we were. Fine. Okay. 10th floor does have nicer views, though. I'll give you Hashtag that. humble brag. Anyway, speaking of humble bragging, everyone's favorite social media platform, Facebook, has been in the news, so we'd be remiss to not mention this. However, it's not been all honky-dory for them, to quote my eighth-grade social sciences teacher. The, so if, for those of you who also haven't heard, Facebook got taken to the woodshed when a former employee blew the whistle a few weeks ago on how Facebook's algorithm affects our mental well-being, specifically those of teenage girls, especially, how little it's doing to combat this and misinformation on its platform, both in the US and abroad, wherein we've realized it's actually much worse. So we actually have the deluxe premium freaking flyer version of Facebook in the US, or they have, because we're not. But in countries like Myanmar and others, they it, it's much less enforcement going on. It's very encouraging. Yeah. In response, however, Facebook has acknowledged that severity of the issue and announced sweeping changes to its business model aimed at fixing these issues. Actually, I'm kidding. Uh, a few days later, Mark Zuckerberg actually just announced that they were changing their name to Meta and yeah. sweeping it all under the metaphysical rug. And they keep repeating over and over again, we've got monitors, we've got monitors, we've got monitors. It's not our fault. We can do better. And we are trying to do better 10 years later. And it's amazing the contrast between the rest of us not really using Facebook very often and the power apparently it has in the world. I think people, maybe not me and you, but you have people all over the world who use Facebook for commercial reasons, right? And so it's important that we look at how Facebook regulates itself and how governments can do a better job of regulating it to make sure that people in developing countries especially are not having to worry about whether Facebook will face draconian law changes in, in certain countries that are overreacting and maybe shutting down Facebook and hurting their business 
business where avoiding these unintended consequences, I guess, would be a good way of putting it. So if in America, say, say, president passes an executive order saying social media is banned. I mean, I'm exaggerating here. Facebook in particular needs to be shut down unless it can do X, Y, and Z. And a trader or a farmer in, let's say, Kenya or Tanzania who's selling his goods on Facebook or selling clothing or apparel on textiles on Facebook is unable to use it. Well, that hurts his bottom line, right? That hurts consumers in other countries and, and so on and so forth. So you have these downstream and upstream effects negatively. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not they find the elegant solution to, to all of this. But stay tuned for more on that. Dr. Mark Esposito is a co-founder and chief learning officer at Nexus Frontier Tech. He's an academic, entrepreneur, a best-selling author, and senior advisor to governments. My old job. In 2016, he was listed as one of the 30 prominent business thinkers by Thinkers50. Mark has written hundreds of articles between peer and non-peer-reviewed magazines, 11 books, it's a whopper, including two bestsellers and his next book on the Great Reset ahead of us are due in 2022 with MIT University Press and Cambridge University Press. From 2011 to 2019, Mark served at Michael Porter's Institute for Strategy and Competitiveness at the Harvard Business School as co-leader of the Institute Council for the Microeconomics of Competitiveness Program. Also my old job. My old job. <laughs> Mark holds a doctoral degree in economics and lives between Phoenix, Boston, Geneva, and yes, you guessed it, folks, Dubai. So, Mark, thanks for, for joining us on the podcast. We're really excited to have you on board, albeit virtually. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and you know, what led you to focus on megatrends and, and AI? Thanks for having me. I was looking forward to this, so I'm happy to be together. So I, I consider myself an accidental academic. I was actually at the UN before. I was at the UNESCO for five years, 2005, 2010. I was in Paris. I was doing work. I, was start, I started my PhD and I didn't really know I would end up like teaching and writing. But then when I graduated, I had already started to do some some, some teaching. I was working first at UMass in the US. Then I ended up in France. And then that's when I started and I did a postdoc at Harvard. Then I, I arrived at Harvard in 2011. Then I ended up this this kind of guru guy called Michael Porter, who happened to be where I was mainly doing my postdoc. And, and that kind of opened up to the entire conversation about economic growth, the clusters, cluster theory. So that kind of where I ended up saying that's what I'm pr pretty much going to do for for as I grow up, right? And then one thing led to the other, and from economic theory, I ended up more insistent thinking and sustainability. And towards uh, mid 2015, so we started to uh, run more events where technology was popping up more and more, and people were talking about the aging population, people were talking about scarcity. So we came up with a, a framework that we call Drive. We started to write about mega trends and. Megatrends is the very beginning between being in my reckoning and moving towards uh, like the large, the big picture thing and technology gaining more and more traction in that conversation. So that that's how I ended up where I am right now. But it's pure accident. I think I was never planning on, on being where I am. So apart from, from sounding really cool, what do we mean when we talk about a megatrend? I, I think you can see trends in multiple ways. The, the, the one way to see trends is the trajectories that are, are clearly drafted, right? And, and when we're talking about things like population or, or resources, there are trajectories that start in the past and that likely continue, right? So you can kind of see that. You have some of the trends that tend to be more predictions. They are okay in really simple contests. 
they're becoming less effective when you're dealing with things like the economy, well, trade being one of these complex animals, right? And then there is the options of the future, which to me is much more interesting, is how do we start to quote a guy called uh, Skoblik saying, how do we institutionalize imagination? And the, the other option, the other idea is like, as I see the future as an anticipation, right, from the present, how do I start building it in the way I really want? So if you take this, sorry, folks, at the much larger level, so you're looking at these big trajectories and you add in some options to that, you start seeing things that might be more interesting than just predictions. So that's kind of where I am, right? I'm in this phase where I'm, I'm interested in this anticipation about the future, but empowering people to build it options so that we have multiple hypotheses running, we build different models, we try to test it. Um, much more interesting form of, I think, engaging society to the kind of future we would like to have rather than this more fatalistic view that the future is predetermined and we just have to surrender to it, right? I mean, take us through an, exa- like an example maybe you're kind of working on right now of a of a trend you're trying to help people shape sure. like, and, and maybe something related to trade. One of the big conversations is how digital will change, right? Can we have digital trade? Can we start having technology more and more in the exchange of uh, trade between countries. Will technology change the nature of trade the way it was designed back in the days? And will the rise of plurilateralism change the more US-centric view of trade, right? And then you start looking at trends like what is China currently doing? How is technology integrating itself in, in so like wallets? How a trade or services happening more and more through uh, digital transactions? How governments are setting up example of digital nations and you start understanding that this might possibly shape into something more than just a trend. What you never know is one, whether it'll get to critical mass. And second, you'll never know whether the cultural part will be there. So one of the things that I guess is, is, is half-baked in these conversations is that you can imagine the trend because you see this happening and you see that some country are, are pioneering. You see this in Rwanda, you see this in Estonia, right? You see this, for example, in, in Luxembourg, you see this with the Crypto Valley in Switzerland. You can see that. And then you kind of say, will this happen? And the answer to that is fundamentally it's a cultural problem. It'll happen if the culture re- realigns itself to the technology opportunities. So that's the part where we can't predict. I can't be like the economists sometimes are in, in building models that define predictive uh, outputs, right? Because it would be nice if we could do that, but there's too much complexity out there. There's an example, for example, where I see this now happen. People pay you to kind of do that. They're like, you know, give me, give me the answer, Mark. What is the answer? The answer, the answer is it depends. Is the answer so that that's what they end up receiving after they made the work, yeah. and after the PowerPoint, right? And say, well, but what is the answer? There are two answers. One shift happens, so that list that we're clear on that. And second, it depends on where you are. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I see this happening on more localized level. Here in Dubai, you can see this happen at the government level. You can really push that. You can craft it. But will this happen in India? Will this happen in Nigeria? These are questions that we can't answer. Well, I want to ask you quickly. So COVID-19, blah, blah, blah. We've heard it so many different ways, so many different times. Is it a blip? I mean, it accelerated some things, but do you, did it create a shift for you in the way that you're modeling things, the way you're helping people understand things or not really? 
there was a time where I was doing work on exponentiality, VUCA, and all this stuff, right? And I was always finding myself unnecessary, no matter where I was, right? I was like, hey, guys, about volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. It's about exponential acceleration. And, and I were realizing that people were, there were the ones that were really bought in, and they would like come after class and talk to me about it. And the ones that were saying, ah, it doesn't work, right? It doesn't matter to me. Today, I have way less resistance. When I'm talking about complex systems or I'm talking about shocks that are generating waves of disruption. People know in a way shift happens and, and they're 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 much more receptive. Yeah. And they understand now that that wow, we can we can find ourselves in a show in no time. And are we ready? We're not. Our government ready? Forget about that. You know, do we have small leaders and big problems? We do. I think we're we're having a common repertoire of, of shared knowledge and wisdom around the world. I mean, we kind of have all the same kind of experience depending where you I mean, I guess this this is the point you were making about technology takes us to one of the things where I guess everybody's interested in, which is Dune. <laughs> yes or no? No, I mean, you, you've you been thinking about AI, so artificial intelligence, yeah. you've been writing and people are worried about like, is AI going to replace the middle manager? I hear yes. So I'm, I'm quaking in my boots there. But sh- should we be thinking about things differently? Is it coming? Because life right now still looks a little bit like life did before, even though yeah. we hear a lot of developments. What, what so What's your reaction? You know, what worries me about it is the mismanagement of AI from humans, right? Not technology. So I never worried about the technology, About I worry more about what we mistakenly think technology is. So I'm much more worried about us, right? The second thing I worry about is this concentration of powers in the hands of so few people, right? And what they all have in common is that they are they're technology companies. They can structure data in a way that it becomes an intelligence and they can use predictive modeling to partially manipulate behavior, right? And so I, I'm afraid of that more than anything else. But do I see this happen anytime soon? No. I think that contextual AI, which is the most dangerous one, is still far from being in our life. We're still very statistical driven. Most of my AI friends who are you know, AI scientists, they don't even call it AI and they don't see intelligence in it. It's just merely some form of advanced computational science. Is math and statistics with computing power. So I think we we have to demystify more than anything else. That will help a lot to deflate. And Netflix kind of guides us on all possible futures. It seems like the we got the Squid Game or Twitter. I hate everything because of Twitter. <laughs> and I'm living a better life than you. That's Instagram. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so so I think that's a good segue into the to the next thing we wanted to touch on, and that is you, you talked about tech companies and. Basically, we want to explore a bit more. How does that factor into your thinking on where AI is going? So if we're looking at a trend, one trend that we see in the last two decades is that this con- there is this concentration of power of these tech companies, not just in market share, but in, in reach and scope, and they're in people's lives and things like this. And I think that coupled with what we see in popular culture, if you're talking about Terminator, I mentioned Dune as a joke before. And so we have this fear of AI. So the question is, what do you think is the missing link for citizens to fully trust AI or an AI-enabled future? Is it, is it trust in government? Governments themselves, we talked about small politicians with big problems, things like that. I think one is that trust does not come just because you got technology in the picture. I think we think that because the the, the software works, we trust Alexa. We don't. We we simply don't have trust as as an implicit. And 
I guess we have to build it, right? There are many people that still don't know how this stuff works and how do we trust it? That I think is a big question. And, and we see this in a period of time where for a number of reasons, I think we're, we're rediscovering some form of tribal. So it's even harder, right? To have an overarching sense of trust that is coming through technology. The second is that we should really, we should govern this stuff. Like we govern pharma, we govern tobacco company. Like you can't have your food truck on the street if somebody doesn't give you a license because there is a clear liability in if you give me poison stuff. But we have no form of governance before the show started when we're talking about metaverse. Do I worry about the U.S. government being completely unable to figure this out? I worry like every government in the world, right? But these guys are hiring 10,000 people in Europe on metaverse, and then governments are still figuring out, should we break Google down and smaller? I'm just worried about the mismatch between the sense of urgency and how we're taking this incrementally when we should not. We should really try to build more of a pluralistic society where technology, politics, business, you know, are really talking. The public debate is missing. I don't find What that. is the major thing that politicians need to understand better about this issue? Because it seems like they're talking about antitrust regulation, at least in the U.S., in terms of Teddy Roosevelt. So this is more than 100 years old, So, but they're dealing with a problem that is very much a 21st century issue. So what is one thing they need to understand about how to get their hands around this? I think there, there, there are two issues. One is the economic model for a technology company that is driven by volume and engagement. And that means that truth or the absence of truth have the same economic value. If I say something didn't happen, but it did happen, it doesn't matter as far as somebody likes it, right? And I think that part is important. How do we start rethinking the economic incentives for a company that have no incentive for any fundamental shift in their business model? The second thing is thinking that letting people choose, like Zuckerberg has often said, because that's what you want to, I think is misleading because Sometimes truth doesn't have two sides. It just has one. And I think this isn't, I mean, guys, I, I'm old enough to remember how I grew up, right? Grew up between upstate New York and Montreal, right? And I remember my, my dad or my mom would teach me lessons about when things are wrong, things are wrong. If you were making a mistake, you were making a mistake. There was a sense of accountability that if you cross the line, you cross the line, you carry the consequences. Today, I can come up on social media and say any form of BS, and as far as it amplifies and it generates some form of, of, of consensus, right, it generates legitimacy. And that's, I think, where governments are really not seen. I think this is really uh, what I like government to start understanding more and more, that we have to regulate. Because sometimes truth doesn't have necessarily always shades of gray. Sometimes it doesn't. I'm just afraid that the fact that we are using technology to polarize rather than as a unifying factor. Like it used to be, remember the idea of Facebook connecting people you, you got lost with because you're now in university, you went to elementary school with these guys, and, and now, oh, you see them, you got married. Now, that's no longer there, right? We kind of- Yeah, the next thing you know, you're invading the Capitol building. That's right. <laughs> with that guy you went with to high that, school with. that same high school guy who's also <laughs> yeah, radicalized. Exactly. That's what helped you, right? Facebook helps. Facebook. So, <laughs> and uh, just a quick one on the on the regulation. So we see China doing some things, okay, erratically, but they've, they want to govern algorithms and trying to reduce the power of big tech, at least on paper. So are they doing something? I think we should definitely get credit to China that they're bold enough, right? Even if we consider it to be bold on the wrong side of history, the fact they're not showing up at COP26, it's bold, right? I think, I think China is definitely understanding that technology could become the very erosion of the communist. Because if you start giving voice to so many different people in a system like China, which is currently entangled by a pretty big inequality crisis, right? 
you start having people that are naturally becoming contrarian to the status quo. But I think China is trying to really to hear the opposition by understanding that technology is the amplifying chamber, right? They could really build that participation in the grassroots that would be so hard for the party to control. I'm not sure. I don't think we can mimic that anywhere else. But clearly, they have understood that technology is not neutral. So if we're talking about risk specifically, what are some systemic risks or one that you're that in your opinion, nobody is talking about? What is something that we should be focusing on? You know, our, yesterday, under different circumstances, I was brought to awareness that because of cyber attacks, a country like Netherlands lost last year $10 billion, right? And I'm thinking $10 billion, Netherlands. And I'm thinking, how much are we losing elsewhere? So I think we are not able to yet metricize the idea of cyber attacks and cybersecurity with, with financial costs, because for some reason, it's still very mystique. But I think that's a systemic risk that will hit us. Because it's where most of the value of the world is shifting to intangible, then cyber is uh, is definitely where we should spend more time. But that we're building capacity, to be honest. I don't find that we have in the sense of urgency where I'm thinking everybody's rushing. There are more people rushing to go to Coinbase or Binance and buy a fraction of a Bitcoin than people are really investing into capacity for cybersecurity. So that is something that I, I think is... It's not even a black swan. This is actually a gray rhino, as they call it. It's right there, middle of savannah, rhino running towards you, and you don't move. If you don't move, maybe it won't see you, like the (laughs) T-Rex. Maybe, right? I think that's the philosophy. So actually, that that, that makes me think of one one last, one other question. And that is, I recently read a a book last year by Philip Tetlock called Super Forecasting. And for anybody who hasn't read it, he talks about how the best forecasters, they look back and they calibrate using decisions that they got wrong in order to make better decisions going forward. A lot of your work is on, quote unquote, predicting where trends are leading us. And But looking back on your career, what are some things that you can see that you've gotten wrong or haven't been completely right? And how has that shaped your your thinking moving forward? Or a couple, couple of things that came to my mind. I mean, it's actually recent reflections. One is there was a time where I was doing a lot of work on sustainability, right? And I just realized recently that I was too narrow in my understanding of this because I was thinking that you can simply fix it. And I wasn't seeing the, the cultural norms around sustainability and what it means, right? And also, if I will revisit a lot of my writing back in sustainability, I was was too, too bottlenecked somewhere. Right. It, was, it wasn't working. So I think my whole understanding of how do we address this entire climate conversation, I think today is different before. The other thing is, I think what I realized today is that you pivot by just constantly failing and integrating the failure back into some form of reinforcement loop. And I guess that's really where I'm thinking. Life is much more about that experimental touch about everything and the ability for you to pivot at the grassroots is much more powerful than if you try to pivot top down. And I guess this is something that if I had known before, I would have thought differently about many things that kind of shaped me. But I also uh, embrace it because without that disappointment, I wouldn't be where I would like to be tomorrow, right? So I, I think it's okay. I'm coping with it. But I was thinking, gosh, it took me quite some time to figure this out, right? And then the only thing I don't have, like all of us, is more time, right? Yeah. So I think now we'll jump into, let's say, lighter side of what we normally ask yeah. our guests. 
So, so on a scale of zero to Ridley Scott or James Cameron, how likely are machines to start turning on the human race? Are we going to end up in a kind of matrix scenario? That's a movie. Is that yeah. one? Neither one of them. I'm not good with movies. Well, I think that we're already we're ready in pretty bad shape when we see emulation of the Squid Game around the world and people celebrating the psychology around that series, right? I have to I, I enjoyed the series in the sense that I understood it was like a monumental period of our life and being able to see a Korean series becoming globally accepted. But didn't I feel terrified about the truth of the psychology behind? So I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that we're going to go more and more in direction like that, where we're going to we generate more extreme experiences that we will be completely apathetic because they, I don't know, they, they don't really mean much. I'm not sure whether you know Nick Davis, that was at the World Economic Forum, you know, right? So Nick, uh, now back in Australia, and we interviewed him a few weeks back because we're writing this book and he wanted, we wanted to touch base on, on his understanding where things are going. And he said, we could hack human behavior to the point in which you can drive people to commit suicide, right? Especially in time where virtual has become so blurred with reality. And it was the first time that I felt really vulnerable, that technology could really hack me as a person, right? Me as a system, right? So I think to, to answer your question, I, I, I'm afraid that some dimension of our life are already moving into that currently is is perpetrated for commercial use but could this become malign of course it could we're not at skynet yet but we're at a solid philip k dick on the on the spectrum of machines pretty yeah. much it's not too late it's never too late in the movies either no because melinda hamilton will come save us or linda <laughs> melinda melinda gates linda hamilton no sorry. melissa mel we'll come back we'll, we'll edit this out it's linda it's linda, linda hamilton linda yeah hamilton. thank you thank you should know this actually <laughs> so one of the things about uh, mad max guys remember yeah. yeah 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 i feel like that right now we're not necessarily there yet, but I, I feel I am on a flight to Mad Max land somehow. Yeah, I think if we're not going to be wearing shirts most of the time, I'm going to really have to, I'm going to have to work out a bit. Start working out yeah. more than a bit, but. <laughs> Artie's already there, so he's pretty confident. <laughs> and have you been to Staten Island? I mean, this is this is obviously really a critical import, of critical importance. Artie is from Staten Island and he thinks most things originate there. Yeah, I think that Rosetta Stone is in Staten Island, isn't it? <laughs> Thank <laughs> yes. you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. He's not answering the question. I don't think. I guess that's I don't think he's ever been to. No, I think I have been to Staten Island. Is is it the one in Florida, right? (laughs) I like this guy. Oh, he's a listener. He's definitely listening. He's it. Yeah. Okay. That's that's a good answer. We're taking that answer. I'm gonna go try and mention this to my therapist. That is not getting cut at all. (laughs) So the one question we always ask is, of course. What is your favorite kebab place in Geneva? So we usually it comes down to two, and it's usually Alamir. And I won't mention the other one. Or Vol- sorry, the Voldemort of uh, kebab place. Yeah, this is, as as a scientist, he'll know that's that's not yeah. a fair way to ask that question. So I will disappoint you guys when I tell you I'm vegetarian. I know that I, when falafel. I, when I when I thought this question might be asked because you know remember I I, I go through the future trends right theory right <laughs> I just thought at one point in time. I had to tell you this, that yeah, I, I don't eat meat, but I can tell you that here in, in, in Dubai, where you have the more, I would say, authentic version of the kebab, these guys, they know their, they know their kebab. So I heard Alamir, but we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll call it a girl. Uh, well, Mark, uh, thanks so much for joining us for this uh, super lively and interesting discussion. Oh, I'm nice, sure. Guys. It's a much, 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 much better than most of my Zoom calls. Well, folks, that brings us to our new and updated 
This Week in Local News segment. We've been broadening our reach in the last couple of episodes, but now we want to bring it a little bit back home, starting with today's episode. I know this is Rob's baby, so Rob, just take it away. Yeah, we've kind of modernized the segment, and so we're we're not just stuck with Geneva local news. All news is local. Now we're also talking about news from pre-time, from archaeological times. From the before-before times. So, <laughs> folks, we do drink whiskey sometimes during podcasting. This is true. Allegedly. Not enough to get hungover. That's very important clarification to make. So there's been a discovery. A gold and purple amethyst ring was discovered in uh, Israel next to Byzantine, Byzantine era's largest known winery. And in an accompanying press release, they said it's possibly was warned to prevent the ill effects of drinking too much alcohol. Many virtues the ring has, but one of them could be the prevention of the side effect of drinking, comma, the hangover. And uh, it's not the only thing ancient uh, folks use to cure hangovers. There's also the recommendation to wear a necklace of laurel leaves, another one. Whatever that is. And uh, another one, perhaps a tincture of licorice, oleander, beans, oil, and wine. Three things you can all order on Amazon. <laughs> Just the wine probably is not a bad start. No. They, they don't specify which wine, which vintage, which sepa. So I think this is a good chance for us to rediscover some of the cures. Tylenol? Yes. <laughs> sounds, that's a Greek name, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. From, in, in another from, form. From the ancient Greek philosopher Tylenitis. Tylenitis. Can we order this amethyst ring on Amazon is my question. Yes, <laughs> that's the thing. If Everybody's not, now combing. They're clicking. Okay, if not, let's move on. If, this. I'm going to be walking out next time I go out like Liberace with 16 amethyst rings on my hand. <laughs> let's, look on, let's look on the internet. Well, folks, that about wraps up episode 25, brought to you by manganese, the element used to create Japanese comic books. And it's not a fruit. (laughs) We'd like to thank our guest, Mark Esposito, for taking us to all things AI, future casting, and also we would like to thank the Court of Appeals in California for freeing Britney. We also want to thank Michelle for helping in producing this episode, as always. And please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already. And make sure you catch our next episode coming out very soon. And by very soon, we mean sooner than last time, for those of you wondering. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and really anywhere you get your podcasts. Literally everywhere. We are in the metaverse. Also, don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so already. They do help, and we know you have the time. If you're listening to this, <laughs> well, how do we know that? Because they're listening to us. Yeah, exactly. So they can take a few minutes to leave a yes, review. I if remember, they have Apple, unless you're an Android fan. And remember, Tradesplaining does reduce tooth pain. It, the soothing sounds of tooth pain. Very much so. It's the, one of the beneficial side effects. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Tradesplaining, or on Instagram, at Trade.Splaining, or email us your questions the old-fashioned way, or comments, at Trade.Splaining at gmail.com. Once again, that's trade.splaining at gmail.com. And don't forget, everybody, listen responsibly.